0: Welcome to the Exponential Performance Podcast. In this episode, we're going to take a look at the 4i power meter. Does EPO actually improve cycling performance? We've got some new research that may suggest otherwise. Lessons from the lab. Are you setting yourself up for injury? Never, ever, ever give up. Lessons from life. We've got a interview with up-and-coming multi-sport and adventure racing athlete Isla Smith. Plus we've got some Q&A about chest pains on the mountain bike and what do you do when the shit hits the fan. Let's get into it
1: welcome to the exponential performance podcast join sports scientist and performance coach matty graham to find out how to train smarter and maximize your performance no matter who you are
0: welcome to the exponential performance podcast thank you very much for joining me my name is matty graham and over the next mm, it'll be about 60 minutes today we're going to dive in and take a look at how you can train smarter to maximize your performance, no matter who you are, no matter what level you are at. Before we get started, I just wanna cover a few housekeeping things so you can get the most out of this podcast. Now, if you're listening to me right now, you have obviously found this podcast somewhere. Well done on that. Just a couple of the platforms that I am on I am on SoundCloud, so make sure you get over and subscribe to SoundCloud. This is where I upload the podcast to first. This is where everything's hosted. So if you are subscribed to SoundCloud, as soon as I upload this podcast, you will get a notification that I've uploaded it so you can get into the content early. The second place that I upload it is YouTube. So if you are a YouTube listener, a big shout out to you because I've got a big following on YouTube through my channel anyway. And there's a lot of views uh, and listens, I guess, coming in from YouTube. So thank you all the YouTube listeners out there. If you aren't subscribed to my YouTube channel, make sure you get over there because I've got a lot of other videos on there aside from this podcast that cover training, nutrition, racing information. So get over and check that out. I am also now live on Stitcher Radio, which is a very cool app that you can have on your phone. Uh, And if you subscribe to this podcast, it will come and give you updates every time it's uploaded as well. And then the other platform that I am on as well is Pocket Cast, which I believe is for iPhone users. And I am working on getting the process sorted for So that's where I am. Make sure you uh, subscribe. Please give me a thumbs up if you're enjoying the content. Leave a comment about uh, what you liked in the podcast, what you found useful, what you'd like to hear more of, uh, or just leave a comment to say hi. I really appreciate those. Please, I want to hear from you guys. I want to hear from you guys about your questions you have about training, about racing, about anything I can help you with. Ideally, I really want to get these in voice message or voice recording forms so that I can play them back here on the podcast and then answer them. That way it's just not my voice rabbiting on, we've got some other voices in there as well. I've been getting a lot of questions via email, which is great, thank you very much for that. But what I am going to do is prioritize. The voice questions over them when those voice questions come in. So if you want your question answered, send me in a voice message. And the way you do that, scroll down to the bottom of the website where this podcast is, the Exponential Performance Coaching website, and then click on the record button. There's a little green box down there with some red arrows pointing to it. Click record. Say your message, whatever that might be, that question, ask it. Tell me a little bit about yourself, where you're from. It's always interesting hearing where you listeners are. Hit stop. And then what will happen is down the bottom, there's a wee button to click saying, are you happy with your recording? Click yes. And then what will come up is, how do you want to send it to me? Click the email button. Put in the Exponential Performance Coaching email address, which is exponential.com performance at gmail.com this will all be on the website so you can just copy and paste it bang in your email address there and send it through to me now what I'm going to do is for every voice message that I receive I'm going to give you free access to my performance temple ebook now the performance temple is a performance template that I've put together that is a way of structuring your training, no matter what training you're doing, to get the most out of yourself. Now there is a free download of the Performance Temple, which is just a bit of an introduction to it. And I'll post the link in the show notes below for that. But what I wanna do is if you send in a voice message, I'm gonna give you the extended version of the Performance Temple, which is a paid edition. So you're gonna get this free if you submit a voice question so please do that i want to hear from you now just to follow up on a couple of things from last week's podcast i had a lot of feedback about the garmin heart rate problems a lot of people saying i've had the same problems as well and then a couple of little pro tips and workarounds for those that are having problems so a lot of people said I found it better when I took my heart rate strap into the shower and gave it a wash after every session, or put it in the washing machine. Obviously, taking off the little, um, the little sensor that's on there, just putting the soft strap in the washing machine and giving that a wash. So definitely, it seems that keeping your heart rate strap clean helps with the problem. But I found that strange because I keep mine pretty clean, still had the problem, and then. So if you are having troubles, give it a wash, see how it goes. The other thing that came out of it, which was very cool actually, because I hadn't actually thought of it, was, I probably shouldn't have said that, I should have said I thought of it, but I didn't think of it, so thank you for the, uh, the two listeners that sent in this. Because Garmin runs on an Ant Plus network, you can use any Ant Plus heart rate strap or any Ant Plus uh, device to feed back into your Garmin. So in the situation of needing a new heart rate strap because your other one's crapped out, you can buy any of the cheaper heart rate straps that run on an AMP Plus network, and it'll still work for your Garmin. So I think someone said that they were using the cat-eye heart rate strap, and it um, retails for a lot less, almost half I think it was, compared to the Garmin heart rate strap. So it makes it easier to replace those heart rate straps without having to fork out the cache. So thanks for those uh, two pro tips. Give the heart rate strap a good wash on a regular basis. And two, if you're sick of buying the Garmin heart rate straps and they're always breaking on you, have a look for any other heart rate strap that runs on an Ant Plus um, channel. The other thing I wanted to follow up on from last week's podcast was about protein. We talked about consuming protein before bed to maximize protein synthesis while you're sleeping. And I got a question about this saying, what form should I take the protein in? I think I covered this in the podcast, but obviously it didn't get across. In the research, they used a protein drink. Mixing and protein powder in a a drink form and consuming that. What I would recommend is before you go to bed is to have it in drink form. And the reason I say that is that it's a lot easier for your body to digest it because it doesn't have to break down the food that you've consumed to get it the protein and the amino acids to be absorbed. So it's going to be a lot quicker in that that sense. It means you're also not going to go to bed on a full stomach. Because if you're taking a lot of food before you go to bed, obviously, sometimes it can you know, sit there, you can feel uncomfortable, and you can struggle to get to sleep. So I would recommend taking it in a drink form, in a sort of a protein shake or a protein drink, just so that you don't get any GI problems, it doesn't affect your sleep. Um, and it's more readily available to the body. So with those few things covered, let's jump into it. This week's gear junkie, we're gonna be talking power meters. Now power meters for cyclists are such an effective training tool. They allow you to monitor your training intensity a lot more accurately than heart rate. Power is the actual work that you're producing. Heart rate is, it's kind of like the rev meter of your car. It gives you an insight into what is happening, but it's not the actual work that's happening. Heart rate is also affected by a many, many different variables, whereas power is what you see is what you're producing. One of the big problems with power meters is that they are quite expensive and seem to be out of a lot of people's price range. What I am going to do this week. Is I'm going to talk with Ryan Shanks, who's a keen cyclist and the host, actually, of the Rest Day with Mike and Ryan podcast, which is an extremely entertaining and informative podcast about all things related to fitness and the fitness industry. I'll post a link in the, in the show notes so you can get out and check uh, out that podcast as well if you want. But I'm going to catch up with Ryan about his new power meter. He brought our 4i precision power meter. It seems to be quite cost effective and sort of really good in terms of stacking up compared to the more expensive power meters. So let's jump into that call and we're talking with Ryan Shanks about his new power meter. Just as a side note, Ryan's not sponsored by 4i. He brought this purely because of the research he did. So uh, we're not trying to sell power meters here. We're just trying to give you a bit of an insight into some different gear. So here we go. Alrighty, Shanxi, tell us about your new power meter. Ah
1: uh, man, I went with the the uh, the four I one. Basically, first of all, it was because of the price. Um, I was going to go with the stages, just because it seemed to be the most popular left arm left arm power meter, um, and then a mate of mine who's a pretty good cyclist was like, do get the 4i one, and so I sort of checked it out, and I went on their actual website, which I, I seem to never do, you know, because you get it faster from eBay or something. So anyway, went on their website, and it was like... It'll ship the next day. The shipping cost was next to nothing. You know, something like it was like twelve, twelve dollars, fifteen, fifteen dollars, or something for a power meter from um, wherever they are. And uh, and yeah, it seemed to do the same thing. All the reviews uh, were really good for the for the left arm, the left arm crank. So I w- I went with that one. What did they end up coming in as price-wise? I paid. I think it was seven thirty for the for the unit and then and then yeah 10 10 to, 10 to 20 bucks of shipping it was and crazy cheap shipping it, but yeah so it was a lot cheaper than i thought a power meter would be so it was quite nice
0: yeah mate that's really really well yeah. priced what does the stages come in at
1: uh, yeah the stages was upwards of 850 so it was an extra 100 bucks um, just standard price and then i don't know what the shipping was either so the cheapest stages Uh, Which is not also not the model that I was looking for. I was looking for the Altigra, and I think the cheapest stages was the the one hundred five, or something like that. But um, yeah, I mean they're still under a thousand, which is sort of their claim to, you know, being really cheap. But they're still um, a lot more expensive than than the four i. Man,
0: that's such a good price in terms of you know like SRMs. Oh, you know double that price oh, if not more
1: oh yeah they're up there <laughs> i was never going near any anywhere near something like that so it was quite interesting talking to people that you know you read reviews online and stuff but people that you know um having opinions on it also changes it sort of people that you think are you know or you know they're good writers and they say like man you should try 4i like i've had really good experience and then you hear with the stages, other people have had bad experiences, like, you know, sort of in the wet, or they're not good connecting to um, certain head units and stuff like that, so, and I was pretty much sold on the stages, you know, because that was the only one, not being a, uh, cycling not being my sort of, <laughs> most natural, you know, my number one sort of sport, I was kind of um, oblivious to a lot of the other options, and then, yeah, when 4i got made, um, Sort of, I found out about that. It it just seemed like a the better option to. So yeah, I sort of dove in and went with that one.
0: So this is crank mounted. Do you get a new crank, or do they mount the power meter to your crank?
1: Yeah, well you can do it either way. You can, you can send them your uh, original crank, and they'll put the power meter. On there, yeah, you can do that with both sides as well, so you can send them single side or your whole crank set for the double sided, they'll install it and send it back, or you can buy the new crank arm or the new crank set, and I bought the new crank arm. It ended up being, it was obviously a lot faster, and it only ended up being, I think, like $50 less than if I would sent mine away and got it sent back, so I was like, well, you know, for waiting three or four weeks. Um, I think fifty dollars extra just to get the new crank comes worth it. So, and yeah. so the actual unit
0: that you get added to the crank is it is it like nine grams? That's how much it weighs. Yeah, nine I've, grams, is it? I'm,
1: I mean, I've definitely felt that extra weight riding around. You know, basically up a lot of hills. I've um, definitely felt that on the bike, but just having them, <laughs> no, it's yeah. I mean, it's it's in all seriousness. You look at it, and it's just nothing. You know, like it's a tiny little. Um, I don't even know how to describe it, like a little a little box with a wee battery in it and then it yeah, it's it's yeah, nine grams, so it's nothing.
0: <laughs> how long have you had it now and have you done much riding in the wet with it? How does it hold up in terms of its waterproofness?
1: I've had it about six uh, maybe eight weeks or so two months. I haven't ridden in the wet with it yet, no, I haven't just...
0: You don't even ride in the rain, do you? I do, You're a fair I weather do, rider.
1: But I just tend to have not, I just haven't ridden in the rain with it yet. <laughs> I think it's going to rain tomorrow, man. I could do an up. it
0: up. Um, you mentioned that your some of your guys that you ride with have them as well. Have you heard anything from them about any dramas with uh, water tightness or anything?
1: Um, Case, the guy who recommended it to me, he's got the. A four i but he's got the double-sided, the double-sided version. So the the whole the whole shebang. Uh, but he said it's yeah pretty much perfect. You know he doesn't have any problems at all with it. Um, so yeah, I mean that's the only the only other person I know with uh, the four eye But um, yeah, it seems seems to be all good. I
0: read somewhere that you need to zero it, uh, the power meter or calibrate it before each ride. How have you found that process?
1: Well, I actually haven't zeroed it before each ride, um, and I find the readings to be pretty much where I reckon they would have been. You know, they don't change each ride. I Basically, I've forgotten a few times, you know, because you just jump on. Oh, yeah, I've got power. Awesome. Um, but the zeroing process is so easy. It's basically, um, you know, go into your settings on your Garmin or whatever, hit calibrate. Put it, put the uh, crank at six o'clock, and then just wait for 30 seconds, and it just calibrates, and away you go. Super easy, man. It's, um, yeah, I wouldn't have bothered with anything that was, uh, you know, super fiddly or hard to do. So, so this is a left sided only power meter, so it only
0: measures the left side, so you miss out on comparing. Your right versus your left, and getting that sort of comparison. Have you found that that's been much of a problem, or something that you've missed, or something that you would have wanted in a power meter?
1: No, not for me personally, man. I think uh, uh, at the stage of sort of my riding, it's not that's not the sort of marginal gains that I need at this point. You know, just having the power zones to work in, and uh, basically for me, it's knowing not to go too hard, you know, because I'll just sort of sprint around and you, you you're so slow sometimes. It's because you're sort of not very efficient, you know, but if you ride into a power that you know you can, like, under your threshold pretty much, then you know you're going to be all good. So, yeah, that um, split for me, not really important at all. I understand for a lot of riders it would be, but, um, yeah, not for me.
0: So just in general, Shanks, how have you found the power meter – the 4i precision power meter um, in terms of just general overall usage, how has it changed your training?
1: I've found it amazing, eh? It's, it's like one of those things where, you know, you don't know how you sort of rode without it beforehand. You sort of, you've got that data there and you kind of wonder what you did, but if you know what you did, you looked at average speed and you know, you're like, oh, I'm going 40k an hour or whatever, but... Um, Having actual power, it's it's awesome, man. Eh? Like you could be riding, you know, like you say, in the rain against the wind, but going ten k now. But you know, you're still doing your, you know, three hundred watts or whatever your effort is, and um, in you know, you're still getting some benefits, So it's it's really cool to have that objective, um, yeah, data. So it transmits on an
0: ANT Plus or a Bluetooth network. Is that right?
1: Yeah, and plus I I use it with the Garmin that uh Edge eight ten, so it's a recycling computer. Um, that's what I was gonna say, you can you can use it for with Bluetooth on their uh, apps. You, you don't even have to have a head unit. You could just have like a smartphone. I was thinking about it, like you could have an old like iPhone four and just have the the you know, just have the four i app on it and chuck that on your computer you know, like if you were starting from scratch, you'd almost rather get a power meter and a smartphone than a a cycling computer in a lot of ways, you know. That's
0: a really interesting way of going about it, definitely cuts down the cost of not having to buy, you know, a monitor to go on your bike to get the readout if you just use that smartphone.
1: Exactly, man, that's, uh, you know, I guess like the the Garmin gives you the, the fun stuff, you know, like you put on Strava and all that, but I mean, at the end of the day, that power is what's going to make you you go faster objectively with your um with with your riding. So, yeah, it was it was an interesting interesting thought. But yeah, you wouldn't want to buy a power meter and the Garmin all at once. You'll be out of pocket pretty quick.
0: <laughs> well, mate, thanks for sharing your insights on your new 4i Precision Power Meter. We'll potentially have to catch up in the future. A bit of a long term review. See how. It's holding up after a bit of abuse.
1: Hundred percent. I um, yeah, I haven't done the uh, the old FTP test yet, so have to get the. I've so I've been writing, you know, you're sort of guessing and getting some objective stuff, but when you get those zones and stuff, I think that's really when it will uh, come into its own. So, yeah, after I do that, it would be good to good to let you know how I, how I find that.
0: All righty, mate. Thanks for your time, and I look forward to catching up in the future.
1: Thank you, Maddie. See you later, Matt.
0: Bye. So, there we have it. I hope you found that wee insight into the 4i power meter interesting and helpful. If you've got any more questions about power meters, or maybe you have a 4i power meter as well, how have you found it? What's it been like? Let us know. It would be greatly appreciated. So now it's the time of the show where we jump into Mythbuster. Now this week it's not actually full-on Mythbuster, but what what it is is a very very interesting bit of research that come out about EPO and cycling performance. Now, EPO is erythropoietin, which is uh, a hormone that's secreted in the body that produces new blood cells. And cyclists have been using EPO, injecting it artificially for many years with the thought that it improves cycling performance due to the increase in red blood cells that it produces. Now some research has just come out of the Netherlands from the centre of human drug research and what they're saying is that EPO may not actually improve cycling performance at all, which if it doesn't is mind blowing and it's, it's really just incredible. I don't really know what to say, actually, but this is a is crazy. Actually, it's just crazy. So what happened is this research group got forty-eight well-trained Dutch and Belgian cyclists that volunteered for this experiment, and they had to surrender their racing license uh, to their clubs that they raced with because they were going to take a banned substance for this research. And the cyclists were quite well trained, they all had very good um, power to rate ratios and they had to ride at a certain level to be accepted into the study. So these weren't untrained people, these were trained cyclists. So there were 48 of them, they were recruited into the study. And then half of them were given EPO and half were given a placebo. And they were given these dosages over 8 weeks. After this 8 weeks they did uh, a performance test that was very, very real world specific. What they did was a 130 kilometer ride which ended in a performance test up Mont Ventoux in France which is a very famous climb that is often included in the Tour de France. And what they found, and and it shocked everyone really, and they still are sort of scrambling to figure out what this actually means, is that there were absolutely no significant difference in the time to the top of the climb between those that were given drugs, the EPO, and those that were given the placebo or were riding clean. So the people that were... Given EPO, they were obviously injected with EPO, so they knew they were getting EPO, or they thought they knew that they were getting it. The people that were given a placebo were also given an injection, but it did not contain EPO, so they didn't know whether or not they had EPO, or they didn't. So the the placebo effect here sort of gets cancelled out, and it's it's a very robust way of researching. So the the results from this are quite credible and it's coming from a very well respected research facility. Since this data has been released, it's been analysed and it's been sort of scrutinised quite heavily. It is not yet published in a peer reviewed scientific journal that will come but at the moment this is sort of a pre-release just letting people know so this isn't this isn't proven research yet it hasn't been through the peer reviewed cycle and it will be very interesting what comes out of this it is really interesting because cyclists that have knowingly taken EPO have always or have often said that they feel much stronger after they take EPO, that they feel stronger when they're climbing, when they're riding. But during this experiment, cyclists were questioned about this, how do you feel, and none of them ever reported feelings of unusually enhanced power or endurance. So it is potentially that All of the EPO that people take for cycling is just a placebo effect in the real world. So Lance Armstrong, all of the EPO that he was taking and the other riders during the time, they felt stronger, they rode harder, but it was potentially that this was just a placebo effect. Because in this controlled research, there was no difference in how people were feeling because they didn't know if they had EPO or whether they had just a placebo. So it's very, very interesting. Apparently it's the first time that this research has been conducted in such detail because it is so expensive. Apparently it's cost about 500,000 euros to conduct this research. So it's not cheap, that's for sure. So. It'll be super, super interesting and I'm really excited and interested in this about what comes out of this research and what flow-on effect this has and what other research comes out of this. It will be really interesting to see. Is EPO actually not changing cycling performance at all? Now I'm not saying that EPO doesn't change the amount of red blood cells that you have because it does, and that's why they use it. But whether or not this increase in red blood cells is actually changing performance in the real world is unknown. Now, in saying all of that, this is only one experiment that's been done. um, And we don't know, they haven't released data or information about the dosage, the training, or uh, or how they were dosing it, so it will be interesting to see that when it comes out. So this is something I'll be watching with uh, great interest, and I'll keep you posted as soon as I know anything more. So that was Mythbusters for today. It's not a myth that's actually been busted, but it's super, super interesting nonetheless. Alrighty, lessons from the lab. This week we're going to take a little bit of a look at injury. And there's a couple of research papers that I want to dig into today to have a wee look at different factors causing injuries and what you can do, the lessons you can learn from these to apply to your training. So let's dig into it, lessons from the lab. So some interesting research investigating training related risk factors of overuse injuries. It was carried out in Finland and it took 446 of Finland's top male and female endurance athletes. These were swimmers, cross-country skiers, long-distance runners. and What they found was some interesting results. It was found that athletes who had less than two recovery days per week were five times more likely to get an overuse injuries compared to those that had more recovery. Which is quite interesting because normally in training programs there is one recovery day a week is sort of standard. Um, In that same study, it was also found that athletes who trained more than 700 hours per year which equates to approximately 13 and a half hours per week on average, they were two times more likely to sustain an overuse injuries compared to athletes who trained less. So thinking about those two, how does your training stack up with those? Do you have one recovery day per week or do you have two? Or do you have one complete recovery day and then a sort of lighter day? depending on the athletes that I work with, I sort of balance it around that mark somewhere, depending on who they are, their training level and what their goals are. But one complete recovery day per week is a must-have. And then potentially another lighter training day in there somewhere. Now, in some different research, but sort of related to this recovery and injury thing as well, they looked at sleep. Now, everybody knows that sleep is very, very important. And if you don't know that sleep is very important, I'm telling you now, sleep is very, very important. But just how important sleep is for injury is something that we didn't really know. It looks like sleep is a really, really important risk factor in managing and preventing injuries. A really interesting study looked at adolescent athletes and showed that those who slept for less than eight hours per night on average were two times more likely to sustain an injury than those who slept more than eight hours. That's quite incredible in itself. So you can decrease your risk of injury twofold just by getting more than eight hours of sleep each night. So if you're not clocking up eight hours of sleep, then that would be a very, very easy and logical place to start. A lot of people get out there, have a look at, you know, oh, can I get compression garments? Can I take this supplement? Can I do this, can I do that? Looking for all of these silver bullets to help improve their performance, reduce injury, you know, make them faster. But they're not even doing the basics right. So eight hours of sleep per night is key. You need to be getting more than that. If you're getting less than eight hours of sleep per night, this research shows that you're twice as more, you're two times more likely to get an injury. So have a think about that. How does your sleep match up? How much are you guys actually sleeping out there? Write a comment below. How much sleep are you getting per night on average? It'll be interesting to find out what of what all of you listeners are doing. So what does this actually mean for us in the real world? It's all very nice having these lab results, but what lessons can we learn from them? So the takeaway message, while these findings, I guess, are you know two research papers that are associated with uh, injuries, they are associations, they're not causations. Meaning that if you don't get enough sleep, it doesn't mean you're going to get injured, but what it means is that in general, if you're not getting enough sleep, it is going to start creeping in there the likelihood that you can you know, improve your risk of getting injured if you like, increase your risk of getting injured. So it's not just about training more, as that first research article told us. It's about training more effectively and potentially a little smarter, balancing that training and recovery. So if you're training 13 and a half hours a week or more, which a lot of endurance athletes are, then you need to pay particular attention to your recovery, your mobility, your stretching, your nutrition, your hydration and your sleep to support that training that you're doing. When you're planning your overall season and build up, make sure you take into consideration not only your training, but also all of the other factors in your life. Because what you'll probably find from these results in the real world, if you're training more than 13 and a half hours a week, which is a pretty solid training load, that it's not just the training that's getting impacted, it's the sleep because you're juggling work You're juggling um, potentially study with family. And while you're getting in the training, you're not getting in the stuff that supports the training. You're not getting in that recovery. So have a think about that. While it might not just be as clear cut as that 13 and a half hours per week, or that 700 hours a year of training, it's the stuff that surrounds that. The stuff that you're not doing because you're putting in in the time training. So it's not just about not training more to not get injured, it's potentially the things that are missing out because of that training you are doing. So there we have it. That is lessons from the lab for this week. Moving on. Lessons from life. And if you don't know, there is a race called the Indy Pack. It is 5,500 kilometres. It goes from Perth, Australia, all the way across to Sydney, Australia, from the Indian Ocean over to the Pacific Ocean, hence the name the Indy Pack, the India Pacific Wheel Race. Now, there are about 70 crazy mofos out there at the moment on their bikes doing this event as we speak. And a lot of people will think about this event and they'll go, oh, well, they probably have a support crew. No, they don't have a support crew at all. Oh, that is interesting. They have to carry all their crap with them. They have to carry their sleeping gear, their food, their water, everything with them. And then people think, oh, that's probably you know, not that bad. It can't be that hard. The sections of road that they're riding through the outback of Australia are just incredibly isolated as well. There's hundreds and hundreds of kilometres go by without any towns, no resupply options. This is such an extreme event to be doing. And what I wanted to talk about today, because I've been watching this with great interest. I am an avid uh, ultra-endurance, self-supported bikepacking type um, cyclist. Having done, um, you know, a number of brevets, self-supported brevets, and the tour of Aotearoa, which was 3,000 kilometers self-supported on a mountain bike, the Endy Pack is something that intrigues me, and I've been watching it with great interest. So if you haven't watched this or didn't know it was on, get over. I'll put the link in the show notes. Get over and check it out, because each of these riders have a little GPS tracker on them and you can see exactly where they are along the route. Now these guys and girls are ripping it up. They're riding upwards of uh, three to 400 kilometers per day. There are no sleep limitations. So a lot of them are riding through the night, getting one or two hours of sleep every 24 hours. They have to carry all their own gear, like I said, and be completely self-sufficient. A lot of them are just sleeping on the side of the road in a bivvy bag. Some of them are checking into motels along the way. But it's absolutely crazy. So get over and check it out because it's incredible. But what the Indy pack really demonstrated to me over the first couple of days was about never giving up. Even within the first 48 hours, there are a number of people that dropped out of the race. And whether that was because of injury. Uh, The weather was atrocious by the look of it over the the first day. But there was a lot of people pulled out and what it did was for the people that just kept going, it instantly bumped them up the standings. It wasn't a case of they had to ride faster to get better, they just had to keep riding and people would drop out and they would get a better position. So never giving up is such an important lesson. I think not only for uh, uh, an event such as the Indy Pack or the Tour of Aotearoa or, or all of those other, you know, big long endurance events, but just life in general. And it's all about just taking one more pedal stroke as that pedal comes up to the top, just push it down again, as it comes back up to the top, push it down, as it comes back up to the top, push it down. Endurance events, and I guess life in general, really reward those with mental t- with the mental toughness to, you know, excuse my language, but harden the f up and keep going. And one thing that I always see with the athletes that I work with is this, those that are successful and destroy their own and other people's uh, preconceived conceptions about them are those that are able to keep going when the going gets tough. It's all about just driving forward when things get hard. Not only during a race, but in training. Because when we race, it's only ever such a small proportion of the time compared to the preparation phase for the event. You can be training for months, years even, for an event. But when it comes to the event, it's only such a short time in in comparison to what we train in, in life. What I wanted to do today is really developing this concept of hardening up and just pushing, pushing, pushing through no matter what happens. And this may be in your sporting life, this may be just in day to day life, but what Ever it is, just take one more pedal stroke, one more step, and never, ever give up. I love Winston Churchill's speech that he gave. This is how the story goes anyway. He stands up in front of this big hall at this school, full of students, and he stood up to give a speech, and what he said was, never give up. And then he walked back to his seat and sat down. And the principal of the school looks over. He sort of stands up and goes over to the lectern and says, uh, Thank you very much, sir, for your speech. Do you have anything to add? And Winston Churchill stands back up, walks back over. And he looked out into the audience. And all he said was, never, ever, ever give up. And sat back down. How true that story is, I'm not exactly sure. But what it does is it gives us that importance of just relentless drive to keep pursuing whatever you are pursuing. Now, it is very easy to lose motivation or that motivation lags. And it's so easy to pull that pin and give up. And I often get emails from people saying, you know, things didn't go very well this week. I lost my mojo, whatever it might be. How do I get it back? And I think the number one thing is, is always go back to the start. Why did you start this thing? What is the overall goal here? If you haven't written your your goal down, then it's not a goal, it's just a dream. So always write your goals down so that you can go back and look at them and know exactly why you are where you are. Why did you sign up for this thing? Why do you still have 3000 kilometers to ride your bike? Why is this so hard? Why am I going to do it? Why am I going to not give up? Why am I going to keep going? So always go back to that original goal. Keep your eye on the prize. Keep it laser focused and keep going. One more pedal stroke. One more step. If you keep going, You will be rewarded because these events, as with life, really reward those people who keep going no matter what. Sure, you might need to stop, have a drink, have something to eat, refocus, but do that and then keep going. Don't say, I'm going to quit now, pull the pin and then stop, have a drink, have a rest, because usually after you have a rest, have a drink, have something to eat. You feel good. And you're ready to go again. So lessons from life for this week. Coming back to the Indy Pack Ultra Endurance Cycling event. That's happening right now in Australia. 5,500 kilometers from Perth to Sydney. Once this thing is over. I'm going to try and get some of these riders on the podcast. To have a talk about their experience. Because it is unbelievable. This event. But keep going. Never, ever, ever give up. There it is, lessons from life. So what I've got now is a little bit of a break for you so I don't have to keep listening to my voice. What I've got is an interview with Isla Smith. Now she is an up-and-coming multi-sport and adventure racing athlete who placed second in last year's two-day coast-to-coast multi-sport race. Then she got called into race with Team Seagate in the Raid, France. And Team Seagate is arguably the best adventure racing team in the world. And then this year she placed third in the women's open field at the One Day Coast to Coast, which also doubles as the World Multisport Championships. In this interview, I talk with Isla about her racing background, what it was like to race with Team Seagate, a top-level adventure racing team, and she provides you with the five top tips for people tackling adventure races. So here it is, interview with up-and-coming multi-sporter and adventure racing athlete, Isla Smith. Let's start off just by uh, telling me a little bit about your background, how did you get into multi-sport, what sort of caught your fancy about it all, and how did it all begin?
2: Um, Yeah, so I started out playing football from quite a young age, so I played soccer from eight years old um, for ten years, that was pretty much my life. Um, My older brother was into doing a bit more outdoorsy things, and he got involved in the Hillary Challenge team that our high school had. Um, And so then I started kind of getting out in the hills with him a bit, following him around doing the odd row gain in that, and then I joined the team a few years later as well when I was old enough, and so probably the Hillary Challenge was a big thing that kind of sparked my interest for getting out in the hills and just start doing a little bit of mountain biking and and that sort of thing.
0: Nice. What does the Hillary Challenge sort of include?
2: So it's a national competition for um, high school aged students, where you compete in teams of eight from your high school, so four girls, four boys, um, and the national competition involves two days of problem-solving challenges, so one-hour problem-solving events. Um, Then you head out on a two-day Rogaine-style expedition with big packs on and tramping boots um, out in Tongariro National Park. And then the competition finishes up with a uh, roughly six-hour adventure race, so we would train just about year-round as, as
0: a school team for that. Um, that's pretty awesome. Yeah. How did um how did you guys get on as a school team?
2: Uh, we came fourth both the years that I did it.
0: Mm-hmm. That's pretty um, that's pretty hardcore, eh? For you know high school students to be training year-round and that sort of a competition.
2: Yeah, definitely. It seemed like. It, quite prestigious competition that yeah. we took pretty seriously while we were at school. Everyone oh, wanted to awesome. go out and, and beat New Plymouth who were the reigning champions and also my, my brother had just won the year before so there's a bit of a, a thing about me trying to get out there and, and see if I could equal that which I never did. But.
0: <laughs> that's awesome. And so that sort of naturally lef- led you into multi-sport and adventure racing?
2: Yeah, that's right. So um, after I finished high school I kind of decided to leave football behind. I got a bit over that and thought I'd have a crack at doing a multi-sport race, which I was pretty unprepared for. But but um, I, yeah, I did that one and then decided that I'd like to keep doing it. And um, so next year I went about getting my grade two kayak certificate and just doing a little bit more training while I was in my first year of uni. It's a pretty good environment to have a bit of spare time on your hands to head out running and and riding my bike, so, so yeah, that's what I did.
0: It's not what the normal university student does, but it's it's definitely, no. there's a lot of spare time that to be used however you want to. Yeah, that's right. And so talk us through your first experience with the Coast to Coast.
2: Uh, so Coast to Coast, uh, last year, must so it was been 2016, mm-hmm. I did the two-day event after training with yourself um, on a program for, we'll be working on that for about mm, six to nine months. Mm-hmm. Um, so we went out to do the two-day event as a bit of a kind of get a feel for the race and and plan was to kind of then go on to do the one-day race. Um, and it all went relatively well. I had a bit of a hiccup, a few hiccups in the month leading up to it where first of all, my knee got injured and I was unable to run for the last few weeks leading up to the race, which did flare up during the run and made it pretty difficult and the other thing that happened was that my I'd probably gone for a slightly more advanced kayak than I should have my first time round and the first few paddles down the gorge were an interesting experience and involved a few swims so so getting that ironed out before race day was um, a fairly important thing but it managed to all come together I had had one swim down the gorge on race day, and I had a fairly close race with Anna Barrett um, all race, and finished up second to her, coming about 15 minutes back, I think, from her. But all in all, it was a, a pretty smooth race, I felt, and I was really pleased with how it went for my first attempt at the event.
0: Yeah, awesome. And it, it sort of seems that following, or not even following that, but it's, you've had a sort of pretty rapid rise through uh, the multi-sport circles, I guess. Coast, first time Coast to Coast, placing second, which is fantastic. And then last year, um, following the Coast to Coast, you were asked to race with Team Seagate, which is sort of adventure racing royalty, really. Talk, tell us about that.
2: Yeah, that's right. So it was um, very much out of the blue. I was pretty pretty shocked to be contacted by Seagate um, to see if I'd like to head along to over to Europe with them to um, have the opportunity to, to race with them and, and have... You know kind of experience racing at the front end of the field and just to be able to use it as a learning opportunity to to take away from is you know one of New Zealand's young adventure races going forward. So um, I headed over to France with Nathan, Stu, and Chris, where we raced the raid in France. Um, so that's a pretty epic race, it's a multi-day race similar to to God's own in New Zealand. The course I think was about 450 kilometres and it had 16,000 metres of vertical gain and loss so pretty huge amount of climbing.
0: Yeah it's like Um, uh, twice of Mount Everest isn't it?
2: Yeah something like that yeah. Yeah
0: yeah, nice nice. So what was the Um, what did you find the hardest part of that?
2: The hardest part of that race um, was probably like I say huge amount of climbing involved. And also the heat, uh, we were having 30 plus degree days, I think it was up about 35 degrees a couple of days, so just just racing in that heat, um, just trying to keep hydrated when there wasn't necessarily a lot of water out on the course either, um, that was pretty tough as well.
0: I know for a lot of females, because you know, typically racing is three guys and one female athlete in the team. Uh, often it's quite intimidating for the females to go into that, that male team and feel that they're the weak link and I know it puts a lot of females off racing. How did you feel going from you know your level, which is relatively good, but then going into a world class adventure racing team as the, the female athlete, how did that feel?
2: Yeah, yeah, that's right. So often, like you say, I feel going into races there is that feeling of, of pressure on you, knowing that that you are, you know, technically going to be going to be weaker. Um, but the guys are really good at, t- you know, telling me before the race just not to worry about that, to um, to let them know if there's anything that they could do to to help me. Um, we, you know, sorted out our kind of weight distribution amongst the packs before the race so that I was carrying a fair bit less than them um, and they just you know told me that I was you know make myself feel home at the, and at home in the team and not to to feel like I couldn't speak up or say anything because they're such a you know well established and successful team and that you know that really helped me they also said you know they weren't didn't bother them whether they won the race or or not and you know I didn't need to to worry about that sort of thing to just go out there and just try and enjoy myself and So, yeah, so the way that they they did that just made me feel right at home and just to kind of ease those nerves a bit.
0: And that's super interesting to hear that, you know, a relatively, you know, high pressure event for such a team uh, is so relaxed for them, whereas you hear of a lot of other teams that are nowhere in as much of a high pressure situation. It's just them going out, having a good time, where it's the completely opposite approach yeah everyone's yeah. sort of hyper you know competitive and uh, you know there's always team dynamics that you know rub people the wrong way and teams fall apart. but to have such a you know uh, uh, a high ranking team have that relaxed approach is, I think a lot of people could probably learn from that.
2: yeah that that's right and it's probably plays a good part in their success um, the success of Seagate where to really relax build up week and. And just, yeah, it was just, I think the way that they're so cohesive as a team and, and work so well together and to just treat the race more like a, a time trial, to be honest, about how fast they can get through the course, um, it's probably, yeah, plays a, a big part in them achieving so well.
0: And how did that race pan out over how many days did you end up being out there?
2: Oh, I think it was about three and a half, three and a half to four days, um, So, it started off at midnight, which is a fairly unusual time for a race start, Um, and we had a pretty quick start with an orienteering start, and then we trekked through the night and all through the next day, Um, and it was a dark zone actually the next night, because the um, electric company had to um, send the the water down the river for the rafting leg, Mm -hmm. Um, so they had to... To do that for us, so at that point in time, um, if you know, we were dark zone, we had a, we slept all night, and quite a large number of teams caught up during the night. Um, we were out in front with one other French team, Naturex, at that stage. Um, so essentially, the race kind of restarted almost on the second day, which is not never that great when you've been out in front to to then have all of a sudden everyone back together. Um, but from that point onwards, um, ourselves and, and Nature X pulled away from the, the rest of the field over what was uh, the majority of the race just transitioned from, from trek to mountain biking um, over quite a few stages. Um, and then we slowly got a bit of a, a gap on Nature X. It was never huge. Often we would stop for a sleep and, and um, we might see them behind us or they might come into transition while we were leaving, Um but eventually, yeah, we, we just pulled away from them and I think we finished about four hours ahead of them. That's so, awesome. yeah.
0: So you definitely didn't slow the team down in any way? Oh, I hope not.
2: <laughs> that <sounds laughs> I think, awesome. I think, yeah, everyone was really pleased that we'd kind of raced a good, steady race and been, yeah, pretty steady throughout without dropping off too badly at the end, as yep. sometimes happens.
0: Awesome. And then last year as well, you raced the world champ. World, World World Adventure Racing Champs in as well?
2: Yeah, that's right. So the, after that, I went on to race um, Yeah, and, at XBD, which held the World Champs in Australia with, um, I think we were called T7 NZ Adventure Team, um, which is a bit of a combination of a couple of Kiwi teams over here who had qualified from Gold Zone.
0: Mm-hmm. How did that go? Talk us through that one.
2: Um, th- that one was a, definitely more of an, a learning experience for me. It was a slightly longer race, and it was about 600 kilometers. Um, but being Australia and New South Wales, a, a much flatter course, a faster course, and had a lot of paddling in it. Um, and to be honest, that, that started really well for us. We we kind of worked our way into it, and we're, we're racing for the first couple of days quite comfortably within the top, 10 teams there was um, a lot more running happening on the treks being flat sandy beaches and, and kind of Australian forest um, and teams were very close to each other often we would enter a transition I think maybe two days in heading out onto the onto a big bike leg and the second place team were, were leaving transition when we got in and there'd be you know five or six teams still together in transition. Um, and yeah, we were we were racing well. I quite early on had noticed um, that my compression sleeve was playing up a little bit on my shin, and kind of just thought oh, I'd sort it out at the end of the trek leg and keep going for a few more hours. Um, but by the time I, I sorted it out, I kind of had a bit of inflammation occurring there. And as is the nature of an adventure race, you don't you don't really stop much at all over the next few days and over the course of the for the next 24 hours, it just got worse and worse to the point where I couldn't really bear weight on that leg anymore. Um, and then to make matters worse, I, I ended up getting quite badly sick as well, whether that was from from water or if it was a stomach bug that went around, um, I don't know. But So we ended up withdrawing from that race, which was, it was really disappointing, and I definitely felt like I'd let myself down and let the team down, but... That that happens in races, so you just had to to learn on that, learn from that one, and just yeah, push on from there.
0: So following a little bit of a, a recovery time from that, it was uh, time to start heading towards the coast to coast again.
2: Yeah, that's right. So the so the plan after that was to let that inflammation heal, and then and then kick into a summer of coast to coast training.
0: And so this year, you stepped up to the the one day event. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. How did one? How did that? How does that? How is that different from the two-day from your perspective in terms of the preparation and the actual racing of it?
2: Um, I I think there's a lot more endurance involved. Um, the two-day event, in terms of a, a multi-sport event, is an, is somewhat of a sprint to some degree. Um, you know, it's pretty short and sharp each day of racing. Whereas I think with the Longest day. It's about keeping things steady all day, and and I think a big thing in my preparation was doing a lot more back to back sessions, um, where I'd get out on the course and and get through both the the mountain run and the paddle um, in a day. Whereas in the past for for the two day event, I'd been able to go out and enjoy just a a run through Goat Pass that didn't quite have that luxury anymore and just, just backing things up just so you, you knew what it felt like to get on the bike after the paddle or, or to, you know, sit in your kayak for five hours after you've been through the run. So I think that was pretty key in my preparation.
0: Yeah, exactly. That Yeah, those are two key things, eh, is that backing, that backing up that bike, uh, sorry, backing up the kayak after you've run and then yeah. also just Having that longer day in, in there as well, yeah. And there's no other way you can really prepare for that, is there? No. So how did uh, how did the coast to coast race pan out this year for you?
2: Uh, so the coast to coast went really well for me this year. I felt really well prepared when I was on the start line. Everything had gone as as well as it could in training. So that was a good good feeling to be on the start line, feeling fit and ready to go. Um, got and made it into the second bunch on the bike. Um, As it turns out, that that was a relatively slow bunch ride. Things slowed down pretty quickly, and that was a a bit frustrating, but I was able to just kind of sit back and and enjoy the fact that I was going to be able to get onto the the run with fresh legs. I think there were two other women in that bunch with me, and and I knew that the leading woman, um, Elena Usher and Hannah Wells, were up in the front bunch. So I had that in the back of my mind, but my big thing about the day was going out there and focusing on my own race and just getting through the course as fast as I could, so... Got uh, off the bike and onto the run, and just just hit it up steadily up the pass, up to towards Goat Pass, and just that was my my plan was just to keep things really steady and not not to overdo it up there, and and that's what I did. At the same time, I kept checking you know my splits on my watch, and was pretty surprised at how how well I was running through there compared to to what I'd normally go through there in, and what I went through last year in, and and yeah, just that whole run, I was just really feeling on form and and just running well, technically, through there. And um, I got passed by Robin Owen um, towards the top, a South African. She's a, a top runner, and so that didn't worry me too much. I thought, well, she can run through there that fast, and that's fine. She can she can head off, and um, came out the other side, and I was, I was really stoked with my run time. I took 20 minutes off last year's run in the two-day event when I thought I'd had a pretty good run. Yeah, and I caught huge. Hannah... Yeah, so I was, I was really wrapped with that, and I thought, oh, well, if, if everything else goes wrong today, at least there's one positive. Um, caught Hannah in transition as we jumped onto the bikes, um, and then she pulled away from me on that ride and, and ended up getting into the boat a minute or two ahead of me. Um, so, yeah, that ride went well, got some some solids on board, and, and then into the into the boat. And it was, my boat, my paddle was probably my well the thing of the day that i felt like i could improve on the most i probably never found my rhythm that well i possibly didn't push myself quite as hard as i felt i could have um didn't always take the greatest braid choices but but in saying that it all it all went pretty smoothly um, i had a smooth trip down there and and i probably hit a bit of a wall when i hit at Woodstock so with about an hour to go I think a bit of a headwind crept in and I was just craving a bit more solid food and so that was a bit of a, a crawl to get in it was a bit of a relief to get into to Gorge Bridge and see the support crew and a few friends that had come along to support me so it's nice to see them there and and I was sort of dreading the ride home um, but probably the benefit of adventure racing and, and spending those long days out training really paid off by the time I got my bike and a few K and all of a sudden everything started feeling pretty good so I was able to to ride really hard home knew, knowing that Hannah wasn't too far ahead of me and I, I picked off a few guys on the way I think the past three or four guys and, and yeah had a really solid ride and ended up finishing about 40 seconds back from Hannah so so close um, but not quite so I came home in fourth place and I think I was Third open woman,
0: and all in all, I was yeah really really pleased with how my my day went. Yeah, and again, it's you know such an awesome progression from from the two day first ever you know coast to coast two day into the one day, um, and you know such good performances throughout. So, and still being so young as well, the the uh, ability to improve from here is still huge. So, the future looks exciting.
2: Yeah, I'm excited about it.
0: (laughs) And then you had a quick turnaround, two weeks to be exact, for God's Own.
2: That's right. Yeah, probably not really the ideal recovery time, but we made it work.
0: How was the body feeling standing on the start line in Queenstown for the God's Own Adventure Race?
2: All, All in all, it was pretty good, I think, in some ways it meant just two weeks meant I didn't really have to try and get out and, and start training in at all. It was just a weekend of full-on recovery, and then and then the next week was spent just doing a couple of really easy easy rides and short runs, and I think on the Thursday before the race, I got out for a relatively, well, got out for an hour and a half on the bike and everything was feeling pretty good, and, and so I think on the start line, I was feeling really good and really... Um, Relaxed in some ways, probably the most relaxed, and, and looking forward to the and you know excited about about it as much as as much as I was nervous to get started. So, um, so yeah, I was feeling pretty good on the start line.
0: Awesome. And when that uh, that hooter went and you guys hit it off, um, how did everything go?
2: Uh, it all went, you know, it played out really well for us. So I raced with a uh, team was called the Sneaky Weasel Gang, which is a nice. a name that turns a few heads. So we're a relatively young team, um, and there's no real expectation on, on our shoulders or anything to perform that well. We weren't, you know, in anyone's picks to to do too well, but we kind of headed out with a confidence and knowing that if we worked well as a team, that that we had the potential to definitely be in the top ten and just to give it our, our best crack and focus on ourselves and see what we could do. So we, we hit it off pretty quick. The first stage was a sort of a multi-sport stage around Queenstown, and I think pretty early on we found ourselves kind of up and racing in that top five, which was really encouraging for us and was probably really the theme of our whole race, just being really kind of encouraged with, by the teams that were around and how we were racing. Um, so I really enjoyed the whole course around Queenstown. It's really my most enjoyable adventure racing course to date. Um,
1: nice.
2: Just a lot of good fun single track mountain biking, backcountry mountain biking out on the other side of Waka Tip and, and some really good technical trekking legs. And and like I say, we yeah, I think we pushed each other well as a team to really go out there and, and race that terrain as much as we could and, and push each other hard and ended up, I think we, we dropped off the pace a little on the last day. A few sleep monsters crept in and everyone was feeling... Feeling pretty sore, but um, but we managed to hold on to, hold on to fifth place and, and come home in three days and sixteen hours, so all in all, it was pretty successful.
0: That's fantastic. I think you're uh, you need a well-deserved rest now. Bit of an uh, yeah. off, bit of an off-season.
2: Yeah, that's the one. Yep.
0: Before we start cracking back into things, so if you if you had to think. Isla, about your top five pieces of, of advice that you could give to uh, other athletes out there training for uh, an event such as Godzone, what what would they be? Top five. Top five,
2: okay. Um, Godzone's very, like the nature of the terrain, is it's very technical, um, a very little, small amount of your time when you're trekking is actually spent on trails. Um, so for that, my advice would be to to get out with a with a pack on your back and the shoes that you're going to race in, so that you don't end up with blisters on race day. And just to to get to get off trail um, and just you know learn how to to trek on that really technical terrain on you know sidling around and and the alpine terrain. Mm-hmm. Um, probably my advice for mountain biking is is something similar. And as someone once told me, is you know get your mountain bike and take your mountain bike somewhere that you shouldn't You shouldn't be mountain biking and can't mountain bike. Um, learn how to carry your bike on your back, how to push it through the bush, because in reality there's a higher probability that you're going to spend a fair bit of time um, walking your mountain bike and carrying it on your back.
0: Yeah, sounds um, like there was quite a lot of that in this year's God zone.
2: Yeah, there was a, a one fairly big saddle that we had to climb up that, that no one was going to be riding up there, so... So yeah.
1: Awesome. So
0: we got Um, tip number one: uh, get off track for trekking. Tip number two: don't go mountain biking; just go out and carry your bike. Tip number
2: three. Number three, something that, that I've learned is probably take the time to look after yourself. So whether that's well, it involves a whole whole range of things, but but look after your feet. I've you know before every race or spend the week beforehand putting um gurney goo on my on my feet to kind of give them a bit of a water repellency before we start and then just taking the time during the race when whenever you stop to to put baby powder on them just to dry them out or to keep applying that gurney goo um and just you know take the time to put chapstick on put sunblock on to to be eating you know the right kind of food and not not in a way that's inefficient but um but yeah just really making sure you look after yourself so that you don't you know get to day two and and realize that your body's totally smashed
0: yeah it's definitely a case of a little bit goes a long way when it comes to self-care doesn't it if you just do a few little things it doesn't really make you feel any better but if you don't do them man you actually feel like rubbish
2: yeah when you start
0: to get blisters or chafing or whatever it might be
2: yeah, yeah, and I've learned that lesson, Learned that lesson the hard way, but um, so <laughs> right, I know now.
0: God, well, as long as you're not keep keep on doing it, that's the thing. Tip number four, what would that be?
2: Um, number four would probably be um, know your teammates well and be really open in communication with them. That was one thing I got from racing with Seagate that they're really um, really good communication lines between the team as to as to well, with everything but the big one being as to how they're feeling, um, and just to never be afraid to, to jump on toe or to, to shift gear between your team because at the end of the day it's you know, venture racing is a team sport and it's about how fast you as a team can can get through the course. Um, so it's really important for no one to have the kind of too much of an ego where to say, you know, they can't can't be told or can't have someone take their pack, um, you know, everyone's going to need it at some stage, it's most likely, so to just to have that really good communication um, between, between everyone about that and, and how, how that's going to happen for the race.
0: Awesome, and then what would you round out your top five tips with, with number five, what would that be?
2: Number five is, is something I've learned, but it's not applicable to me in a way, it's probably the most important thing, is navigation is critical, so... So really dial in your navigation um, for the race because I think you see it time and time again in every race in that it's not necessarily about the speed at which you're racing because you'll find the speed between, you know, your team that comes first or, or in your top five is, is not necessarily that much different than your, your team that comes midfield. But um, so often it's the navigation just... You know, if you're covering less ground, if you're going in the right direction, that's going to always pay dividends
0: in the end. Yeah, it definitely helps me be racing in the hard in the right direction rather than hard in I the wrong right. direction, isn't it? Yeah, like no, that is absolutely fantastic. So, what are the future plans from here?
2: Um, so, from here, like you say, I'm taking a, a bit of a break at the moment, bit of recovery, um, which. Well, it is a break and it is recovery, but, but, you know, being an endurance athlete, it's hard to sit around and twiddle your thumbs, so I just get out and do a few things just for fun, just as I feel and enjoy myself for the next wee while um, before getting back into some, nailing down into some training over winter, um, during the winter cross-country running season and a few local events before heading off to the Adventure Racing World Champs in Wyoming in August, so that's something that I'm, I'm really looking forward to, um, and then and then most likely looking again at competing at the longest day in 2018.
0: Nice thinking about uh, the longest day in 2018, the coast to coast race. What do you think? As long as you don't let it away too many secrets, what is going to be your approach to the race, or what are you going to change or be able to work on to uh, better yourself for that for that race next year?
2: I think that the paddling's a big area where I definitely had some some big improvements to make. So, like you say, won't won't give away too many secrets, but um, but we'll be working hard on that over the winter and and over the year and just just improving every discipline as much as possible.
0: Watch out, watch this space. <laughs> nice. And then, obviously, this is a pretty challenging sport to take part in and and compete in. And, you no doubt have some sponsors and supporters that you'd like to uh, publicly thank?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yep, Um, probably first of all, uh, my workplace, Optimal Performance, they're a physio in Christchurch and they're really incredible in supporting me and just with the flexibility that they give me to to have the time to train and to go and and race in events and also they just do such a great job with their physio and massage and, and bike fits and, and the use of their gym and just keeping my body all running as it should do. Um, because prior to working there and getting that it was it was definitely breaking down a fair bit and and um feeling a lot stronger for that. So that's a big thanks to them.
0: Nice. So um, that so what do you do there as work?
2: Uh, I work as a receptionist, but a reception admin of jobs.
0: Cool. So there they've got physio massage and a gym and bike indoor bike classes and, as well. And bike, and bike fitting, yeah. Nice. So whereabouts is that?
2: Uh, it's in Christchurch in Middleton. So I'm, uh, I'm slightly biased, but I reckon they're the best in town.
0: Nice. Get along there if uh, yeah, if you're in Christchurch. Yeah. And
2: then, and then also Torpedo 7 have really supported me just about since I started out doing multi-sport, um, and especially the bike shop there, the boys in the workshop are, are always super good at um, looking after my bikes, and uh, they're especially good to me when I when I go on the week before the race and say, ah, please help, this has gone wrong, which seems to happen, seems to happen too often, so yeah, big thanks to them as well.
0: Fantastic. Well, thanks a lot, Isla, for joining us, um, and... We look forward to following your progress this year, and uh, we'll have to have another catch-up once you get a few more races under your belt.
2: Yeah, it sounds good. No, thank
0: you. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. I thought it was really interesting Isla talking about going into uh, an adventure racing team as a female athlete, potentially the weak link, but how she approached it and how supportive the team was around her. I think that's such an important lesson for adventure racers out there, and especially female adventure racers, because it, it can be intimidating going into a team like that, but I think you can learn from it and hopefully The team around you is cohesive and supportive to help you along the way. So, moving on from our interview, I want to just tackle some listener Q&A and wrap things up. The first question I got is, now the first question says, I am a cross-country mountain bike rider and I am 35 years old. It says, I am worried about my heart rate. I have a max heart rate of 200. I love pushing the pace, but I get a sore chest sometimes. I find it hard knowing how to train my heart to be lower, but still be able to push. I hope that makes sense. Well, if you're getting a sore chest, chest pains, tightness on your chest, trouble breathing, which kind of sounds like your standard interval session. (laughs) But if you are getting chest pain like you're describing and you're worried about it, I would say go and see a doctor right now. When you are an endurance athlete and you're putting your heart under stress, what can happen is that any predisposed heart conditions can start to come to the surface. If you were a normal 35-year-old going about your day-to-day business, you would probably never know that you had a heart condition. But when you push yourself physically, then heart conditions can start to show themselves. And there have been a number of endurance athletes with heart conditions. And to be fair, they probably would never have known that they had them if they were just your normal Joe Blogs in your street. So, number one rule is if you have chest pains, go and get it checked out. Firstly, by a doctor who will be able to refer you to a cardiologist. So, how do you train your heart to be heart rate to be lower, but still be able to push? This is all about developing firstly that base endurance and then on top of that developing your anaerobic threshold. Now it's not about training your heart rate to be lower because what will happen is you'll find that you that it never gets easier so to speak. You just end up going faster. So while your heart rate will be lower at an absolute intensity, let's say you're riding along at 100 watts. As your fitness improves, your heart rate at that sub-maximal intensity will drop in comparison. But when it comes to race day or when it comes to doing your interval sets, you won't just go out and ride at that low intensity, you're going to ride harder. there will be a decrease in your heart rate at a given intensity, let's say 200 watts. But when it comes to it, you're not going to just go that hard forever from that point. You're going to push as hard as you can, which will be higher absolutely, and you're going to feel the same. You're going to have to work as hard to get there. I hope that makes sense. I'm not sure if it did. I'm not sure if it even answered the question, to be honest. But what I would say is if you're in doubt about these chest pains that you're getting, get them checked out so that you know 100% that it's not going to be a problem. Now the second question made me laugh. Uh, and wouldn't it be so much better if these questions were asked uh in a voice message and then I could play them so that it's actually the person asking the question's voice that you're hearing. So remember, if you do have a question, please record a voice message, email it through to me. And what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna send you a free copy of the Performance Temple Handbook as a thank you. So this next question made me laugh. If the odor makes significant contact with the air moving, rotating device. Now, if you didn't get that, is if the shit hits the fan, how do I identify key sessions in my training week, uh, those which are most important to achieve? So what happens when the shit hits the fan, things fall to pieces at work, uh, things fall to pieces at home with the kids are sick, whatever it might be, How do you prioritise the training sessions that you've got to do? Which is a great question and it's almost another lesson from life. What do you do when things start to fall to pieces on you? What I would suggest is depending on your training phase, if you're in your base training phase, then the key sessions are going to be your long endurance sessions. So I would prioritise those. Depending on your training program, you're probably not going to be doing much intensity work during those times anyway. But if it's a case of not being able to get out for the the required time because of time constraints, then scale things back and potentially look at pushing a bit harder. So less duration, push a little bit harder. To make up for that lack of time that's only if you can't get out for the required time then when it comes to your competition phase or your speed phase when you're starting to build on uh on that anaerobic threshold the key sessions around this time are those higher intensity sessions so if you have um your sessions planned out and you can only do some of them because of the odor making significant con- uh, contact with the air-moving rotating device, then get out and focus on those high-intensity sessions. Your interval sessions are key. So I would much rather see an athlete um, skip, say, a general session, a, maybe it's a steady-state run or a ride, and instead do their, complete their interval session, because they don't have enough time then the other way around you're going to get the biggest benefits from the interval sessions the steady state work is still in there for keeping that that endurance volume topped up but when push comes to shove always choose always try and complete those interval sessions over top of the steady state the only caveat to that would be if the situation is such that you're extremely tired you've been you know pushed extra hard at work or you've been up all night then if you are feeling under the pump completely then a steady state session is going to help still get some training effect in there but not push your already elevated stress hormones even higher or even just take a recovery day if needed. So I'll just recap on that because I rambled a little bit, I think. If it's your endurance, uh, if it's your base endurance phase of your training, prioritize your endurance sessions. If you do not have the time to complete the required endurance sessions, you can just increase the intensity and decrease the duration, or you could split the endurance session in two, do half of it in the morning and half of it in the afternoon if that helps free up time. During your speed phase, always prioritize your higher intensity speed interval sessions, whatever you want to term them as, because these are what's going to give you the biggest benefit during that training phase. However, if you're feeling extremely run down under the pump, getting sick, whatever it might be, then it's okay to scale back those higher intensity sessions, prioritize the steady state work, or even just take a complete recovery day to help balance out those stress hormones. So I hope that makes sense. When the shit hits the fan, that's what you need to do. So there you have it. I hope that information was beneficial to you and that it helps you improve your training and your performance going forward. Like I said, please hit the like button, give this a thumbs up. Please leave a comment below. What did you enjoy? What would you like to see more of? And if you have a question, please, please, please send me a voice question so that I can play them and then answer your questions. Like I say, I'm gonna prioritize those questions over the written questions. And if you send me through a voice question, I'm gonna send you out a free copy of the Exponential Performance Temple Handbook, the extended version, as a way to say thank you. So get out there, train hard, but most importantly, train
1: smart.